Check. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing well? Okay, well, I need coffee. In case you're wondering why I have two coffee cups, this is coffee and this is tea. And I need both to survive in the morning. So if you guys do me a favor, tell somebody next to you, tell them good morning. Tell them I love you. And then tell them you don't even know me. So why are you telling me that you love me? You don't know anything about me. Just kidding. All right, I'm excited, really excited about this morning. As I was preparing this sermon, um, and this is something God's been like really putting heavy on my heart for a couple months now. And it's this idea, it's called uh, the beautiful mundane. Everybody say beautiful mundane. One more time, beautiful mundane. All right. Well, Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this moment, Jesus. Just this, God, this time with each other, Lord, this time with you. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would hear, God, your voice, Lord, your heart for us this morning. Well, beyond anything that I could have put together or anything, Lord, we can come up with, Jesus, today, God, we need your voice, Lord, we need your love, God. We need your, your revealing, Father, of God of hope and of joy, God of freedom. We thank you so much, God, and we are so, Lord, so expectant, Lord, of all that you're going to do. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. So put these two words together, beautiful, mundane. And just to start out, I have some definitions. The word beautiful, um, pleasing to the senses or mind of a very high standard. Excellent. And we think of beautiful, we think of like, I mean, let's just get some examples. What do you think of when you think of the word beautiful? Somebody should have said my wife. I set you up for that one. I set you up for that. Come on. We have, I mean, what are some beautiful things in our world? Sunsets, men. Mountains. Grandkids, children when they're not in diapers. I'm just kidding. They're super beautiful. And then we have this word mundane, lacking interest or excitement, dull. And then this definition really got me of this earthly world rather than a heavenly or spiritual one. Beautiful mundane. And so they seem like such odd words to pair together. And in me, that's, I mean, it was a word that God spoke to me, beautiful mundane, and it's just been repeating and repeating and repeating in my mind, beautiful mundane. It's like, how do these two things connect? The lovely, the exciting of high standard with the earthly things that don't really measure up, the things that, that are dull or lack excitement. And as I've, as I've prepared this message, um, man, God's has done a lot, and so I'm really excited. So if you guys would turn, if you, need, if you have your Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. It will be up on the screen otherwise. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 5. And this is a, 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 a zoomed-in moment of creation. So in chapter 1, you have God creating, bam, 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 bam. In chapter 2, you have this zoomed-in moment where God is intricately detailed. He, he's, he's doing things with detail with his hands, creating mankind, creating Adam. And it says... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Dust and breath. Adam was made of dust and breath, dust and spirit. If you study the creation story, you have God. It starts with God. It starts with spirit. It starts with this, this, this other world, this thing that's so beyond. And then God steps into creation and he starts to throw out these physical things. So you have water, you have suns, you have moons, you have stars, you have skies, you have earth, you have all these things. And so it starts with spiritual and then creation starts with physical. And as you, as you, as you watch the way this thing progresses, the physical slowly but surely begins to climb up on that ladder. And by the peak of it, you end up with mankind, humanity, us, you. Everybody say, he's talking about me. One more time, say, he's talking about me. And God forms him of earth, of ground, of dust. The word Adam actually comes from the word ground, dirt, Adama. And so we get our whole humanity from the word ground, mundane, earthly things. And God forms this thing with his hands, and then he does something incredible. He breathes life into it. That word life is the word spirit. It's, it's pneuma. It's, it's, this, it's this word um, that we get for the Holy Spirit. It's this breath of life. And so right at the beginning of this whole thing, the whole beginning of this thing, was God leading something up to where the mundane, the earthly thing, was fused and merged with the spiritual thing. And so you have the beautiful mundane from the very beginning, a beautiful mundane where something that had no real value or worth was suddenly fused with the presence of God, with the life of God. And this is incredible to me, so incredible to me, dust and breath. We're the only thing in creation that is both spiritual and physical. We're created for three things we see. God tells them to do these things and we're created for relation with God, relation with others, and relation with the world around us. There was no separation of spiritual and physical at the beginning. There was no separation of what was a spiritual thing and what was a physical thing. If you actually study the ancient Hebrew language, there is no word for, they don't have no, nothing that we can, that equals our words of like spiritual life. Has anybody ever asked you that question, how's your spiritual life? Have you ever asked anybody that question? Be honest. You guys feel really bad because we've all said that before. Everybody's like, no, I've never said that before. I know where he's going with this. They had no word for spiritual life. Everything was spiritual. Everything was connected to God. Everything was mankind and God working together, living life together. And what's interesting is in our Western culture, we begin to separate what is spiritual and what is secular, right? So we have our jobs, and those things aren't so spiritual for a lot of us. And then we have church, and that's okay, it's spiritual time. We go home, and that's not such a spiritual thing. It's just I have to get through the mundane activities of the day. We go on an outreach or a missions trip, or we sing a worship song, and suddenly everything's spiritual, right? And something that I really want to start hitting in our hearts from this point to whenever this series is over is for us to get it that there is no separation. God never designed it for there to be any sense of separation. So everybody say, no separation. No separation. It all mattered. So 
I needed to use this as a backdrop so we understand where the beginning of this whole thing, the beautiful mundane, comes from. So again, it's the merging of ground and spirit. Adam, mankind, humanity, that's you. Now, the story I want us to study is the story of Moses and the burning bush. So if you would turn to Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to just start in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out, or God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is an incredible story, and we're going to get into chapter 4 in just a moment. Moses has been shepherding for about 40 years at this point in life. He was, I mean, we all know the story of Moses. If we don't, the story is that um, one of the uh, Egyptian pharaohs set out an order because the Israelites were growing too large in numbers. So he sent out an order that said, kill all the young boys, two and under. And so they would kill all the young boys, two and under. Moses' parents sought to save his life, so his mother put him into a basket, puts him down the Nile, and he ends up in Egypt, in, in, the, in, the, in the palace of Egypt. He's picked up by a princess. He becomes royalty within the Egyptian culture. And something's stirring up inside of Moses. We, I mean, we don't have the whole story. Um, but what we do see is there's a point where he matures. He becomes a man, and he sees an Egyptian treating an Israelite very unfairly. Moses steps in, and he kills the Egyptian. And so he commits murder, which means he's now wanted for murder in Egypt. Moses flees. He runs into the desert, surrenders, gives up everything of Egypt, and he's in the desert. At this point, it's been 40 years, 40 years of being a shepherd. Now, what's interesting is about Egyptians, the role of a shepherd was the most despised role in society. For Egyptians, Egyptians despised the role of a shepherd. It was incredibly beneath them. And so now we're here in this scene where Moses is now shepherding, and he's been doing it for about 40 years. So you already see this sort of God working in this man's heart, even if Moses is unaware of what's going on. And so he's serving. He's, 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 he's shepherding these things. Now, these aren't even his sheep. It's been 40 years, and he doesn't even have his own sheep. It doesn't even say he has one of his own sheep. You'd think after 40 years, Moses would have gotten some sheep. It says he's, he was taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. His father-in-law's sheep. I don't know what your relationship is with your father-in-law. Mine's good. But you might not have a good one. Imagine watching his sheep for 40 years. That's what your life accounted for. You watched your father-in-law's sheep for 40 years. And so he's been doing this for a while. And Moses said... I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. It was in the mundane things of life. It was in 40 years of shepherding that one day something happened. 
Something significant happened. He saw a bush burning on the side of the hill, and he said to himself, I will go to see this thing. The question that I was asking myself as I was preparing this message was, how often does God burn bushes in our lives to get our attention, and we just completely miss it? How often does God speak to our hearts? How often do we feel that tug going on? And we can't fight it. We can, I mean, we can deny it. We can say, you know, maybe that wasn't God. I'm going to dismiss it. Um, I don't, I'm not too sure why I wanted to go talk to that person over there. I'm, not, I'm just going to blow it off. How often is God setting fires on the sides of hills to catch our attention? And how often do we miss it? Moses didn't miss it. He said, I see this great sight. I'm going to go see what this is about. I'm going to go see what this is about. The next verse says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. What's interesting to me is that God didn't start speaking to Moses until Moses took a step. Until Moses took a step towards God, towards this great thing, until Moses began to walk out of his just ordinary whatever it was to see something more, see something more beautiful beyond what just watching sheep. And God said, it says that God saw him turn aside and then spoke to him, Moses, Moses. In Hebrew culture, to say a person's name twice is to say, you are my friend. So if I were to tell you, Moses, Moses, if I were to call you by your name um, twice in a row, it's, it's suggesting there's already an existing friendship in that relationship. So God sees Moses' obedience and immediately calls him a friend. Immediately calls him a friend. Then he said, God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Again, in that culture, people took off their sandals in the presence of a superior person. So if you, I mean, in, in our culture, I think a lot of times we take off our shoes out of respect for a person's home, right? That happens in my house. We, we try to get everybody to take off their shoes. And you should still see our carpet, man. Our carpet's disgusting. I don't know what happens. I don't know, like, who spills what. It's like there's Coca-Cola all over the floor. Like, somebody just got one and shook it up and opened it up like a bottle of champagne or something. It's disgusting. And we don't even allow shoes in the house. So I don't understand how that happens. In this culture, you took off your shoes in the presence of somebody that was superior to you. So Moses immediately is recognizing this greatness of God. And then this is what's incredible to me. God says, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. You see, the ground was holy not because the ground was just holy. God didn't choose that place because the ground was holy there. That place became holy because the presence of God was there. And right here, even when it comes to dirt, you see a beautiful mundane. You see this contrast of God's presence merging with something physical, and now there's importance behind this thing. This place is holy ground. And we're going to talk about the ground in that place in just a moment. Holy dirt. God infused the physical with the spiritual. Throughout the rest of chapter 3, we're going to skip through that. God basically tells Moses his plans for the people of Israel. He says, I've heard the cry of my people, and I've seen the suffering. I've seen the oppression that the Egyptians have put on them, and I'm coming. He's basically saying, I'm coming. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to make them my people once more. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 4, this, this dialogue goes on where God's explaining what he's going to do. And Moses responds in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? 
Moses said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. All right, you guys ready to zoom in on this? Who's ready to zoom in on this? Yeah, this is going to be so good. Moses comes out with excuses. He says, but God, they will not believe me. God, they will not believe me. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Moses at that time. I think we think that maybe Moses had it good. Maybe Moses had a good life. Are you aware that Moses was the single male to survive that generation of boys? Can you imagine the questions, the doubt, the hatred in other mothers' hearts when they saw Moses alive? The questions they must have been asking himself, why couldn't it have been my son? Why was it her son? And Moses had to walk around with that kind of thing over his head all of his life. And then in Egypt, he's not even a real Egyptian. He's brought into the family. See, he has this sense of insecurity, this sense of shame, this sense of doubt, this sense of who am I? Who am I, God? Who am I that you would send me to do something like this? And so he tells God, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to me. Why would they listen to me? And instead, this is incredible to me, because I think so many times we get caught up in this question, God, why me? How, how can you ever expect me to do something great for you? Me? Are you kidding me? Me. And God does not even respond to his question. God bypasses his doubt. God bypasses his fear, and he calls attention to something very mundane. He says, Moses, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? Moses' response, a staff. Now, for us, a staff might be something like a walking stick. It might be something that we use as a crutch. It might be something that, that um, is just very plain, very bland. It's not necessarily the significant thing. In Hebrew culture, staffs were incredibly important. Incredibly important. On a staff would be notched basically a person's history. Who they are, where they're coming from, what they've done, their tribe, their position as a, as a, um, as a citizen of like society. Kings had royal scepters. Theirs were made of gold. You had soldiers that had staffs that they could use as like brutal weapons. And Moses has a shepherd's staff. This staff told the world who Moses was, where he had been, what he had done, his value, his worth. This staff had his whole story on it. And God calls attention to that. Moses, what's in your hand? Moses said, it's a staff, my staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. Throw it on the ground. If you think of a staff in the sense of a person's identity, a person's history, a person's past, what God is asking Moses is lay it all down before me. Take that staff, everything you think you are, everything the world has told you you are, everything your parents said you would be or wouldn't be, and throw it on the ground before me. Put it on the ground. Put it on the ground. 
It reminds me of a verse Jesus uh, speaks in Luke 9, 24. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. So if you don't see it yet, this is a picture of surrender. God calling attention to a mundane staff, Moses' mundane past, Moses' mundane history, his mundane identity, his shepherding for 40 years, sheep that don't even belong to him. God calls attention to that story and says, put it on the ground before me. Put it on the ground before me. And this next part's hilarious because you would think that like, I mean, we kind of come to God like, God, I'm going give to give you my life and I'm going to expect this incredible thing to happen and I'm going to be like a Christian superstar and it's going to be awesome and people are going to get saved left and right. I'm going to walk into a bar and everybody's going to fall on the ground crying and I didn't even say a word because that's who you are, God. And we expect this incredible thing to happen when we throw our life out before God. I mean, I remember like salvation moments of so many people where they walk away from that moment and say, why isn't everything better yet? You told me Jesus worked. You told me that Christianity was the way. You told me that this was going to help me. You told me all these things. You told me I'd find purpose. And people, a lot of times, walk away from that place so filled with questions. Here's an incredible part of this story to me. It says, God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. So he's obedient. And it became a serpent. It became a serpent. Can you imagine coming before God, giving your life over to him, and then God shows you your whole life is like a snake? In Hebrew culture, this is incredibly significant. Moses is writing this story. And so when Moses says that I threw my, my, my staff on the ground and it became a serpent, to the Hebrews, serpents were not good. Serpents were not a good thing. If you go back to Genesis, what caused the fall of humanity? It was a serpent. It was, and, and so Moses is in this place where he throws his life down before God, and it's almost like, you know, the staff that told his story suddenly was brought into the light to demonstrate what he was actually experiencing inside. This sense of fall, this sense of, of, of defeat, this sense of, of, of deceit, this, this thing inside of him that just didn't make sense, a serpent. God tells him, throw your staff before me, and it turns into a snake. In, in our human experience, I think one of the biggest things that we're after is greatness. I think a lot of us want some sort of purpose, some sort of meaning. We want to be something. We want to be somebody. We want to impact the world around us. And I see this in secular people and Christian people alike. I've had people tell me things like, I can't just serve every single week. I can't just do those things. I was made for more. I'm supposed to be teaching. I'm supposed to be doing these things. And we elevate these things as to what matters most and what matters least. And we seek out greatness. Now, when this comes to our careers, when this comes to our lives, when this comes to all these different aspects of, of who we are, I think oftentimes it is in our pursuit of our own identity. It is in us trying to save our own lives. It is in us trying to make a name for ourselves that we fall victim to the snake. We fall victim to the serpent. And so you see this all the time. This, it's sad. And maybe this is our story. And there's no shame in this room. God forgives and God loves. But it's sad because oftentimes in our pursuit of greatness, family is left behind. We pursue career and our family falls apart. 
We pursue money and friendships no longer matter. We pursue greatness and we're willing to step on whoever we need to to get to that place. Falling victim to the serpent. Falling victim to the serpent. I mean, this is challenging for me. This is challenging for me. And I'm sure that you guys can understand this in ways that I can't. But I feel like God has a call in my life. I feel like there's this sense that, that God has anointing in my life and I want to do big, incredible things. And you know what the serpent says? You know what the serpent sneaks in and tells us? Don't spend time with your family. You need to study more. Don't hang out with your kids. You need to pray more. This is my life and maybe it's different for you. Maybe it's you don't need to go home tonight. Work a little longer. Get a raise. Maybe it's break that promise with your kid because your boss asked you to do him a favor. And we begin to neglect the mundane because we think it has no importance. We fall victim to the snake. And everything begins to fall apart in our lives, just like the fall, Adam and Eve. So the staff becomes a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Of course he ran from it. Imagine, you're standing there. You throw a staff down on the ground in the presence of God. It turns into a snake. What are you going to do? That thing's going to bite you in the ankle. Get out of there. I mean, I would freak out if my staff turned into a snake. And so it says, Moses ran out of there. He got out of there. And here's what's so interesting to me. What's so interesting to me. I think deep down, in a sense, we'd all run from that snake, even if it represented our lives. Because I think deep down, a lot of us fear who we are. And I think deep down, a lot of us fear who we are not. I think deep down, there's a lot of insecurity as to who we are, where we've been, what we're doing, where we're going. Does my life even matter? Does it mean anything? And so Moses runs away. Moses runs away. It became a serpent. Moses ran away from it. And this is incredible. The Lord said to Moses, put your hand, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Has anybody ever like gone to like catch snakes? You don't catch snakes by the tail. Like, you don't catch snakes by the tail. If you don't know if a snake is poisonous or not, just to be safe, you go for a snake by the back of the head. Why? So that you can be in control of it. You grab the snake by the back of the head so it can't bite you, so it can't snap at you. And God tells Moses, pick it up by the tail. How many times has God asked you to do something you're like, no? <laughs> no thanks, God. You pick it up by the tail. It's like, hasn't somebody told God you don't pick up snakes by the tail? Moses runs away. God's like, it's okay, Moses. Let me come for you. Pick it up by the tail. It's like, what? And Moses picks it up by the tail. He put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hands. He put out his hand and he caught it. He trusted. He had faith. He stepped out, did something really stupid, picked up a snake by the tail, and it became a staff once again in his hands. Let's go back to thinking about that holy ground, the beautiful mundane, when God's spirit embraces something physical and begins to fuse and merge and do things there. 
What was happening? This staff was a representation of Moses' life. The fear, the doubt, the questions, the shame. And God's asking you, what are those things in your lives? What is the guilt? What is the fear? What is the shame? What is the doubt? What are these things that you're still festering up inside? Throw it on the ground because it is in the presence of God. It is in the presence of God that fear is washed out. All fear that he had to pick this thing up is washed away. Washed away. Fear, doubt, questions, all of it. It's just washed away in the presence of God. When the beautiful and the mundane merge, those things fall. So Moses picks up the snake. He picks up the staff. It become, well, he picks up a snake. It becomes a staff in his hands. It becomes a staff once again in his hands. God was giving Moses back a new sense of identity. A new sense of identity. Here's the only people that pick up snakes by their tails. Snake charmers. People that are masters of snakes. The only time that you pick a snake up by the tail is if you have absolute dominion over that thing. You're not fighting for control. You're trusting that this is okay. You're trusting this is good because you have experience with it. God is saying this. Pick that thing up. Those things you're scared of, those things you're afraid of, pick it back up and don't be afraid that it's going to bite you because you're not in control. God is in control. So pick it back up. What are those things? I think so often, especially when we come into Christ, we think that you know, part of the old man being dead is that we no longer have to deal with the past and the consequences thereof. That's not true. Those things exist. Those memories exist. And a lot of times we bury that stuff. We pretend it never happened. We try to act like that never happened. You know what? Here's going to be the incredible part of this story. God is not about burying your past. He's not about burying your past. He is about utilizing your past. He wants to use your story. He wants to use the staff. You know what it was that split the Red Sea in two? It was the staff. It was the story. It was the representation of everything he had been to that point and now everything God was doing. You cannot run from your past. We cannot run from the mundane. We cannot run from the ordinary parts of life. That's what God wants to use. The ordinary things in life. God wants to use that. So God gives him a new sense of victory from his past. Power over the present. Calling within the ordinary. The holy dirt transformed Moses' very being. New life took place. Just like Adam was formed of dirt and breath. Moses' new identity was formed out of dirt and presence of God. Not just the spiritual not just the physical, but both. And I'll explain where this gets practical in a moment. And it was still a staff. He picks it up and it's still just a staff. It's still just his normal day shepherd staff. It didn't turn into like a royal scepter. I mean, it puts yourself in those shoes where that meant everything to you. It's like, God, I mean, imagine like your car, for example. It's like, God, I have a piece of junk car. I really want you to do something awesome with it. God, here it is. And you put it there in his holy presence ground, and you're expecting like a Bentley to come out, and it's just your car all over again. It's like, new tires. It's nice. It stayed the same. 
It stayed the same. And a lot of times we walk into the presence of God and we walk out feeling like, well, that was fun. What changed? And we'll explain what changed because it's incredible what changed. But it didn't look like a very significant thing. It was still a staff. It was still his story. It still had all the same nicks, all the same scars, all the same carvings in it. Still made out of wood. It's still the same thing. And God says, he ends this whole magnificent moment of the staff becoming a snake and the snake becoming a staff and Moses running around and tripping around and all that stuff. It says, God says this, that they may believe. That they may believe. It's all for the glory of God. Always for the glory of God. That they may believe. Oftentimes we lay down our lives before God and we're scared to pick it back up. I see so many Christians live in fear. I see so many Christians that live in fear. Where God's calling, God's impressing things upon our lives and saying, pick it up, pick it up, do something with it. And we're running the other, we're running the other direction. We are not people of fear. We are people of faith. We are people of power. We are people of love. We are people of self-control. We are people that pick up snakes. We pick up the staff. We pick up the dirty, ugly past. And we say, look at what my God can do with dirty, ugly life. With my past. With my present. With my future. So God tells him, pick up the staff. He says that they may believe all for the glory of God. All for the glory of God. Now some of you are gifted in this room. All of you are gifted in some degree or another. Some of you are called to things that you know of. Some of you have no idea what that thing is. Some of you gave that thing up 20 years ago. Whether it's music, whether it's art. I think oftentimes we think that the holy thing of God is to stand up on a pulpit and teach. We think that the holy thing of God is to stand up on a stage and and lead worship. We think that the holy thing of God is to be on a wall praying for people. Yes, those things are good. Those things are good. But we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful because it's really easy for the enemy to start wrapping truth up or wrapping lies up in truth. Where there's a lie at the very center of the thing and it's candy coated with some sort of truth. We need to be really careful that this pulpit is not the place that we're all aspiring to. We need to be very careful. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about Christianity at large. Where we understand we all have been given gifts and callings and we need to use those things wherever God has called us. Moses was still a shepherd. He was still a shepherd. Most despised role for the Egyptian people. Moses was still a shepherd. That didn't change. He went from shepherding sheep to shepherding millions of people. But the skills, the things that he developed the 40 years in the wilderness mattered. They mattered. And I think often we think our lives don't matter. There's no significance to it. Whatever your job is, whether, whether, whether you're, you're helping the elderly, whether you're selling houses, whether, whether you work in a fast food industry, whether, I mean, regardless of what it is, we begin to look at those things like it's not significant, like it doesn't matter. And until I'm able to get into a church and start doing something, then it doesn't really matter. That's not true. It's not true. It's a lie wrapped up in good-looking things. 
It is good to teach. It is good to lead worship. It is good to pray. It is good to read your Bible. Those things are good. Those are valuable. They're required for our growth. But God has put other things inside of you. There are other stories on your staff. There's other things that God has designed you for. Things I cannot do. Things Pastor Ron cannot do. Things the worship team cannot do for you. Things church leadership cannot do for you. The mundane things of ordinary life, we blow off like they don't matter. How many moms do we have that stay at home with your kids? A few, like quite a few of you. We change these pastor's parkings to, um, to expecting mothers and moms with, with uh, young children kind of spots. And that was something that was really passionate on my heart because I want to tell you, I have a wife that stays at home with kids. Orlando has a wife that stays at home with kids. That is hard stuff. That is really hard. And you know what's even harder? The enemy slips in with, your life doesn't matter. All you're doing is raising kids. You're not doing anything significant. He slips in those little temptations. Just wait till you have freedom again. What is that? You're doing one of the most important jobs, if not the most important job God has ever entrusted to a human being. It's time we start finding, discovering once again the beauty in all the mundane things of our lives. You know why affairs happen more often than not? We get bored. We get bored. That's all it is. It's mundane. It's like, well, life's kind of mundane. I have to go back to my wife again. I have to go back to my husband again. It's mundane. And what happens? We see, we see adultery left and right all over the place. It's not even a big deal anymore. Why? Because we missed the beauty in the mundane. We missed the burning bush. We missed the moments God's trying to call our attention to something beautiful. I remember, I remember when Danae was getting like just on fire for God. And she was just messaging us left and right, her whole family. She would send us Facebook messages. She'd be like, guys, God revealed this thing to me. It was so good. And then the question's like, well, where did it come from? A children's book. And for, at the first time, it's like, what the heck? How did you get that out of a children's book? That is incredible. It was real intensely good stuff. And God began to challenge me. Why do you think you can't get something out of a, out of a children's book? Why do you think you can't grow spiritually at work? Why do you think you can't grow in your relationship with God by loving your wife or loving your husband? Why do we think it has to happen just here? Why do we think there's a separation of the secular and the spiritual, the ordinary and the, the, the supernatural? That's not God's heart. God's heart was never for you to start forgetting about this, start forgetting about the physical, and put your mind somewhere else. God started this whole thing with spirit and physical being joined, a merging, a merging of the two. Moses' story starts when his staff is put in the presence of God. The staff doesn't disappear. He keeps the staff. We need to embrace the calls that God has given us. If you're a construction worker, build well. If you're a mom, mother well. If you're a dad that stays at home, do it well. And don't act like it's not something God isn't pleased in. See, there's this beautiful thing that happens 
Exodus 4.18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are now dead. And catch this, this is incredible. Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is the same staff. It's the exact same staff. Before, it was Moses' staff. Now, in Scripture, we're seeing this crazy transformation where it's, no, it's not Moses' staff anymore. It's God's staff. It reminded me of this whole thing where it's, Paul is saying, it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, where God is saying to us, and this is what I want to say to you guys as a congregation, God wants you to bring the ordinary, plain things that we have deemed as mundane and meaningless, he wants to bring you and have you bring it into his presence so you can walk out of that place saying, you know what, this isn't just about my job, this is about God's job, this isn't just about my story, my story now is God's story, this isn't just about me getting through the day, this is about me bringing glory to God in every single thing I do. If it's changing diapers, it's changing diapers. If it's washing dishes, it's washing dishes. If it's praying for the sick, it's praying for the sick. But in all things, in both word and and deed, in both word and deed, words and actions, the word says, in all things, do it as unto the glory of God. All things. Everybody say all things. One more time. Everybody say all things. All things. So this is getting practical. I'm going to sum this up. It's just giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he says, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses now walks out with something completely transformed. It doesn't look different. The actions don't even look that different. He's still a shepherd. The difference is that the mundane was touched by the beautiful. And so God merged himself with Moses' story. And as God merged himself with Moses' story, Moses' story changes nations. Your story is not meaningless. I don't care what material your staff is made out of. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you're the manager. I don't care if you're the bottom of the the corporate ladder. I don't care, and neither does God. God's desire is to take what is in your hands. That question, Moses, what is in your hands? Look at your neighbor. Say, what's in your hands? One more time. Say, what's in your hands? And God wants to take the thing that's in your hands and start using that. Whatever's in your hands. Whatever's in your hands. I think a lot of us think we're lacking things. Maybe one day when I get here. Maybe one day when I get this. Maybe one day when I'm making this much money. God didn't ask Moses what's possibly going to hopefully one day uh, maybe be in your hands. He said, Moses, what is in your hands now? Lay that before me, and let's start there. So what's in your hands, people? What's in your hands? What has God given you? What has God given you? And so here's where this gets really practical for us. As far as church vision goes, in March, we started community groups. Community groups were sermon-based, 
Uh, we ate food. We prayed over each other. It's awesome. It's been a really incredible thing. Uh, we've been on break. We should be starting up again. A couple of groups just went straight through because they were just having such a good time. And that's awesome. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. We're going to start phase two now of community groups. Phase two is going to be what we call interest-based groups. What do you love? What do you enjoy doing? You know what I enjoy doing? I enjoy playing video games sometimes. Just straight out. Just honestly. I like playing some video games. And I like, I mean, I like playing video games with my brother Brian. It's a good time. It's a really good time. What's in your hands? What do you love to do? What do you care about? Do you like going shooting? Do you like hunting? Do you like golfing? Do you like, I don't know, I'm speaking from such a masculine point of view right now. It's awful. (laughs) Sorry, Becca. What do you love? Because God wants to take the things that are already in your hands and use those. Ministry is not just about huddling around a table. Ministry is about living life together. What do you love? So here's the direction we're going with our church in the next couple, uh, within the next month. I want us to begin to ask ourselves, what has God given me and how can I invite other people to do that with me? How can I invite people into my story? How can I invite people into the things that I'm passionate about? And then use it. Bring it before God. Bring it before God. Because God has breathed something inside of you, something this world needs. I'm just going to say this. This is not any, this is no longer, and I've felt this from God's heart for so long now. This is no longer a generation of Christian superstars. This is no longer that generation where we're all aspiring to be a Christian superstar. This is the generation where the church of God, where the people of Christ realize who they are, not who a pastor is, who they are, and they begin to walk in that. Amen. Yeah, clap for you guys. This is good. And as you begin to walk in it, you begin to see how everything is spiritual. How everything's connected to him. Everything. The way I love my wife, the way you love your husband, the way we love our kids, the way we're single. Yes, single. You do it, man. You do it. Because that's what God's put in your hands. And you do it well. And you do it for the glory of God. And you begin to see the beautiful presence of God in the normal, mundane things of life. And I promise you, that staff won't stay a staff for just herding sheep. That staff split seas. That staff healed people. Why? Because it was surrendered before the presence of God. In all of its fullness. The good, the bad, the ugly. That's what God loves to do. That's what God loves to do. And that's my heart for you guys, that you find the beauty and the goodness in every single day. Let the mundane of your life be merged with the beauty that is God. And I believe, I'm believing firmly, like firmly, that we're going to be able to start seeing people doing incredible things for the kingdom of God without limitation, without us having to say it needs to look like this or it needs to look like that. It has to be shaped like this. I'm looking for the day where where this sparks, man, in our homes and our kids are taught that, you know what? You can be whatever you feel in your heart to be, and you're going to do that for the glory of God. I know so many, so many of my friends of the past that they're doing whatever their job is, and their parents are, like, disappointed in them or something. 
Like they didn't do something good enough. Well, that's what's in their hands. We need to start teaching people. Take what's in your hands and do something incredible with it. Stop envying somebody else's staff. Amen? Amen. Well, with that said, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this morning, Jesus. I pray, God, that you begin to awaken our eyes, Lord. Lift up the veils, Jesus, the things that we have deemed as holy or unholy, God. You made dirt holy, Father, and so there is nothing your hands cannot touch, God. There is nothing your presence cannot invade, Lord. There is nothing that your word cannot settle upon and call to a whole new level of living, God, a whole new level of awareness of who you are, God, and what you're doing around us. Lord, I pray for every person in this room, God, that they begin to step into their place, Jesus, into their role. Father, not feeling like they're inadequate. Lord, not feeling the depression or the shame, like their story is not good enough or it's too bad or whatever our excuses are. God, I pray that we would come into your presence as Moses did. And your question to us this morning would be, what is in your hands? What do you have on you now? And let's start there. Let's start there. God, teach us to live normal life with beauty. God, teach us not to just try to always make things weird sometimes, but God, to find the beauty in what you created or to find the beauty in what you're doing. Lord, and for those of us that may feel like we're without breath, I pray, God, that you'd breathe into the dirt of who we are, God, and breathe your breath once more into us. God, we need you. Papa, all for your glory, all for your kingdom, all for your honor, for your name, Lord, that they may know that you are God, that the world around us would know, that our coworkers would see us doing our job in a way nobody's ever done our job before. God, that they would know that you're God. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.